Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. And first, I hope you and yours, including, of course, all the animals in your families, came through Hurricane Ian safe and sound. Well, my thoughts and sympathies go out to the many who did not fare well. The scope of Ian's devastation is dramatic and deeply upsetting. Not surprisingly, we're aiming to carry on here at WMNF, continue to offer our way of wide programming, wide array of programming, including presenting another edition of Talking Animals. I'll tell you about that in a sec, but I just want to offer my thanks to my intrepid uh, WNF colleagues who stayed here uh, during the uh, days of Ian. Some actually lived here during those days just to make sure that we kept broadcasting, kept updating on Ian and other news and uh, mixing in some music as well. And so they uh, put in some long, hard days, and my hat's off to them. So... Meanwhile, today on Talking Animals, my guest will be Dr. Eric Eisenman, founder of International Veterinary Outreach, or IVO. Eisenman launched IVO, which provides veterinary services and training to rural areas in countries sorely lacking both, while in vet school at UC Davis. That was more than a decade ago, during which IVO has grown and changed, becoming a seasoned operation with assorted resources and a high-octane board of directors. Very early on in this evolution, IVO became a 501c3 charitable nonprofit corporation and gradually expanded its reach of improving animal welfare globally by bringing veterinary care and training to rural communities. In some instances, this involves areas where there otherwise may not have been a single veterinarian. For example, this month, October, IVO is launching a new dog health and veterinary training program in Tanzania. A particular focus of this new program is the city of Dodoma, where there's not a small animal uh, veterinary clinic to be found, so animal ramping, uh, animal suffering can be uh, rampant. We'll learn more about the DOMA and the IVO program there, and IVO generally when I speak with Dr. Eisenman in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. A programming note, as you may know, WMNF's Fall Fund Drive begins tomorrow, October 6th. A tricky time, posing extra challenges for fundraising for WMNF, and as always, I carry a responsibility for raising a certain amount of money that is the Talking Animals fundraising goal as part of WNF's overall fundraising goal for the Fall Fund Drive. And these campaigns are crucial for WNF's ongoing existence. Fund drives are responsible for 70% of WNF's operating budget. So I'm asking for your support today. If you've ever found Talking Animals educational, illuminating, entertaining, or otherwise helpful in one way or another, please donate any amount you can, again, today ideally, by hitting our tip jar, which you can easily access by visiting WNF.org finding the Talking Animals page in the broadcast schedule, then clicking on our tip jar at the top right-hand side of the page. Please indicate your donation is in support of Talking Animals. And as always, we have some exclusive thank you guests for pledges at various levels. These will include some fantastic tickets, which I can't quite mention today because I need to completely confirm 
the tickets first, but once I know for sure, I'll be uh, posting about those tickets on social media. Meanwhile, of course, I still have some great thank you gifts for uh, animal people, including a terrific sort of a nutty fun uh, whimsical apron for cat lovers and a stainless steel tumbler coffee mug emblazoned with canines and caffeine make me happy surrounding an illustration of a dog wearing sunglasses this 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 mug or, or tumbler is very cool and there are more thank you gifts to be had of course you can email me at dj at wnf right now with questions about the gifts pledge prices and so on and i'll reply right after the show Later in today's program, I'll talk with Gregory Malik-Jones, a certified pet food nutrition specialist who works at Holistic for Pets in Bradenton. Malik-Jones, who's also a vet tech, will discuss the anesthesia-free teeth cleaning event the Bradenton store is hosting this Saturday, October 8th, and then again next month on November 12th. And we'll hear about other aspects of the Bradenton store. All that is a bit later in today's show. Right now, though, let's talk veterinarians helping animals and people in rural areas across international borders with Dr. Eric Eisenman. With a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Dr. Eric Eisenman on Talking Animals on WMF. Good morning, Dr. Eisenman. Good morning, Duncan. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for joining us on Talking Animals. Thanks for having me. So in a moment, I want to delve into the history of, of IVO and, and, and beyond, of course, bringing us up to the present. But first, I'd like to explore a little bit of your own history. Um, I can count the number, I'd probably be hard-pressed, actually, to count the number of people I've interviewed uh, in the show over the years who, in their own formative years, thought they for sure wanted to become a veterinarian, but for one reason or another ended up somewhere else in animal welfare or rescue, somewhere still in the animal realm, but not... Not as a veterinarian. You obviously did become a veterinarian. When did that become an ambition for you? I want to say it. It the realization uh, hit me probably towards my end of college. And you know, it's funny. A lot of my classmates will say they knew they wanted to be a veterinarian when they're about eight years old or so. I didn't. I didn't really figure it out until until the, the end of my undergraduate days. Wow, that 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 is super unusual. Um, <laughs> yeah. So what what prompted that? What 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 happened towards the end of college where you, where you thought, hey, I hadn't really entertained this thought for you know any time really, much less for years and years, like a lot of my future colleagues. But I think I want to become a veterinarian. What what happened? Walk me through that 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 sort of revelation. Sure. Well, just like every college kid, I I was going through a, a time of growth. Uh, you know, both. Uh, mentally and emotionally and spiritually, and and uh, I was studying biology, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, biology is the study of life, and I was interested in how I could apply uh, the my, my learnings, and um, I was considering medicine, human medicine, yeah. uh, but probably what made the biggest impact on me is, is actually my uh, my uncle, uh, he he's a veterinarian, he's actually a retired veterinarian based in Tampa Bay, Oh yeah, uh, named Doctor Doctor Jim Lutz, um, and he had his own private practice in Largo for a couple decades, and um, and he actually let me tag along one summer and and work with him and in, in, in uh, Largo and 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 that really exposed me initially to veterinary medicine. Wow, so that's really uh, that's really interesting. So so I gather that because you were studying biology. You were kind of thinking, even if you weren't sure what you're going to do in, uh, throughout the college years, that it was probably heading to science, whether that was 
briefly like med school or some other kind of scientific thing, given that that's kind of what your focus of your major and studies were. You just weren't sure where it was going to lead you directly. Yeah, that's exactly correct. I, I was um, very interested in, in medicine, and, and I've always been a huge animal lover. And so it, it, doing that visit that summer in, in Tampa Bay really did solidify my interest in, in serving animals. And, uh, and so that's where I made my, my shift to uh, vet med. Wow. So Tampa Bay can sort of uh, claim some bragging rights for uh, launching this direction, which, of course, ultimately launched the uh, IVO, I guess. So that's that's good. We'll be we'll be bragging shortly. But um, so you touched on something just in passing that I uh, want to find out a little bit more about just because otherwise some of the pieces uh, I'm still trying to put together here. So were you like a uh, kind of an animal lover, f- like throughout your childhood and beyond? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, when I was when I was a kid, my my parents uh, we always had pets, uh, both dogs and cats, and and um, but I was I was pretty obsessed with with cats uh, at an early age, especially around the age of eight is when I I had kept bothering my parents for uh, 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 adopting, allowing me to adopt a kitten, and so on my eighth birthday they took me to the local humane society and. They allowed me to pick out a cat uh, or kitten, and I, I was brought him home. I named him Whiskers, <laughs> just like a you know an eight year old kid would do. Sure. And um, but but you know he he became my best friend. We we uh, we were we were more or less inseparable, especially at night when it was when it was chilly at, and uh, you know living in the state of Oregon. Mm. So um, he 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 became my partner in crime. So that's where you grew up then, is Oregon? That's correct. And then, where did you uh, where did you end up going to college? Well, I ended up going to um, attend the University of Oregon for my undergraduate studies, which is where I majored in biology. And then I uh, moved to California, and uh, specifically the city of San Francisco. And that's where I really started working more in the veterinary field. Or I attended veterinary school um, at UC Davis, University of California, Davis. Yeah. So, so it sounds like there was like a period um, that even went beyond just your experience with Dr. Lutz, whatever, where you were still kind of looking around and, and kind of sounds like formalizing what seemed to then become like, hey, my path is actually going to vet school. But So what else was happening in San Francisco that, that helped kind of cement that, uh, that position? Yeah, so I, I picked up all my belongings and... And something told me to move to San Francisco when I was in my early 20s. And, and so that's what I did. And, and when I arrived in San Francisco, I started looking for some work. And uh, one of the first places that I applied was the San Francisco SPCA. Mm. And uh, so I, worked, I started working um, more as a receptionist at the veterinary hospital, really getting to understand a very different community of people that, you know, compared to what I was used to, um, uh, specifically, you know, more of a Latino American uh, community in the Mission District of San Francisco, and so working with them and and, and helping ensure that their pets would receive care. Um, after I did that for about six months, I I actually transferred within the same organization and started working in their shelter, mm. so the SPCA, and here in San Francisco, 
has a pretty large shelter. Um, it has actually been a very forward-thinking animal shelter uh, relative to many other organizations. I think a lot of that comes from great support from the community, uh, more resources available. And um, but that was that was really uh, where I started to involve myself much more in the field of animal welfare, uh, caring for animals that don't have uh, the um, you know uh, an owner um, that that aren't as lucky as many of our other pets that that we take great care of here in our home. So um, that's where I, I fell in love working with animals that are in greater need, and and the and and so that was the beginning of my chapter in animal welfare. And, you know, it's interesting. I've talked to a good number of folks over the years who, um, through through one th- factor or another, have ended up kind of in that sort of receptionist thing that you've talked about or sort of uh, the intake desk or, you know, it's called different things. It essentially often does the same kind of thing. But ha- who were profoundly affected by, by that experience and, st- and did steer them in some specific direction, as it sounds like it did you. Yeah, most definitely. I think, uh, you know, it, one of the beauties of that is, is, you know, if you're, if you're working, um, at a receptionist level job and in a veterinary hospital, uh, it really allows you to, to understand, you know, it's, it's not an easy job. The, the people that do that work, um, I think are usually underpaid and, and, uh, you know, with, what they put into it, you know, they put their heart and soul into it. They care a lot about the the experience for the client and and um, and the, the care for the animal, and so we can't forget the receptionists. They do they do so much great work for us uh, in the veterinary uh, space. Yeah, and again, just what you get exposed to, um, and what you what you learn, what you can't help but learn, even if there's some some obviously very tough days uh, along the way, um, but it really seemed to help shape a lot of people in terms of what they wanted to do and. Sounds like that that was the case. So it sounds like really between your experience with Dr. Lutz uh, uh, out here and then your your stint at the uh, San Francisco SPCA, it sounds like by that time you were fairly clear, like, hey, I think this means I want to become a veterinarian. Most definitely, yeah. I, I, uh, that's when I started applying to veterinary school. You know, I, I think folks, listeners on this on this radio probably have heard that it can be quite competitive to uh, attend veterinary school. And, and uh, so I, I did apply uh, my first round when I was working at the SPCA and, and I was not accepted by any of the schools that I applied to. And, and so, you know, I think some people might see the, the, the downside of that. Whereas to me, I had the, I looked more positively and realized, well, this would be a great opportunity for, for me to, continue to build my my experience and and um and look look beyond um united states and, and maybe start volunteering for some some organizations abroad and so that's exactly what i did i started setting up um opportunities to work with um essentially volunteer with different animal welfare organizations throughout latin america and spent eight months um oops sorry i spent about eight months um uh, in Chile and Bolivia and Nicaragua and Guatemala, volunteering with, volunteering with lots of different animal welfare organizations and, and, you know, spending that much time abroad and, you know, these are lower to middle income countries. Uh, you, you see a very different side of, 
of how animals are treated in other parts of the world. And, and that's really where I started gaining more interest in, in doing uh, more international veterinary work to improve animal welfare. Yeah, that's really interesting because, um, I mean, obviously I think we start to see how uh, the story we'll get into momentarily about international veterinary outreach, you know, kind of came together. But w- but what, uh, like you said, a lot of people, if they didn't get accepted in their first round of applying to vet school, um, would say, well, uh, I guess this isn't for me. But, but what what prompted you to say, well, I'll come back to that, but I'm I'm not going to keep working and volunteering with animals. But w- how did it end up being like an international element? Did you just have a certain amount of wanderlust anyway? And you thought, well, I like doing this in San Francisco. Uh, I, I would like to do some traveling or I've done some traveling maybe. Um, so maybe I'll just take this to some other countries and uh, kind of, you know, accomplish a few things that I'm interested in. Yeah, yeah. I, I had already uh, traveled extensively throughout Latin America right after my undergraduate degree, and that was that initial trip. I, I spent about seven months traveling through Latin America. I was in Colombia and Ecuador, Venezuela, Argentina, and Brazil, and that was more for fun. That was exploration as a as a young adult, uh, learning language, uh, learning culture, etc. And after I applied to veterinary school the first time, and I was living in San Francisco, I, I saw this as a moment to season that I could, I could take the skills that I'd been learning uh, at the veterinary hospital and animal shelter, and I could bring those skills and, and offer them to organizations that could benefit, uh, populations of animals that could benefit from the new skills that I had developed. And so it was kind of a pairing of, of one, just um, wanting to travel and continue to, uh, to learn and practice Spanish, uh, and two, uh, to, um, to build more experience. And, and really, it was, the, you know, these travels, working with lots of different animal welfare organizations in these different uh, Latin American countries really did allow me to become a competitive candidate for veterinary school. So when I came back to the U.S. after that, uh, second large trip in Latin America. I reapplied to veterinary school, and they they actually let me in this the second time. Well, not not only that, but um, I mean, I'm sure probably people listening know this, some may not. But UC Davis is this you know top top tier vet school, so they not only let you in, you got into like a great one. Yeah, yeah, I was I was pretty lucky. <laughs> well, sounds like what yeah, what you really did just because it was driven by actual passion rather than something as more strategic than some people might do. I mean, you just had really fortified probably what your application looked like in in the second round, and then, then people were saying, "Holy cow, the, this guy! We we, we got we got to get this guy in." Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that for any any folks out there listening that are thinking of applying to veterinary school, that's that's really what you got to do. You got to find a way to stand out and and um, and you know chase opportunities that are unique and you can write about them and tell your story and that'll really uh, push your your application to the top of the stack. Yeah. Well, I want to hear more of your story in just one sec, but I want to let the folks who might just be have tuned in after we began. This is Talking Animals on WMF. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you did just tune in, my guest is Dr. Eric Eisenman. 
founder of International Veterinary Outreach, or IVO, which provides veterinary services and training to uh, rural areas and countries often sorely lacking both of those things. Uh, if you have a question for Dr. Eisenman or would like to offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org, or text 813-433-0885. Okay, so now you're in vet school at UC Davis. So uh, kind of pick up the narrative, if you would, from there. Just guide us to, I mean, obviously you've gotten all this travel. You continue working with animals. But like pretty much right off the bat, if I understand this correctly, you you were you were thinking, hey, I've got an idea for this organization or the seedling of an idea. How did how did it go from there forward? Yeah. So uh, towards the end of my travels, I was in Nicaragua and I had been volunteering for an organization that had some resources and some volunteers, uh, but just really poor organization, and it and it really frustrated me. I remember having a, a epiphany. It was like a moment where I realized there's there's such a great need in play, a place like Nicaragua. There's so many animals that are suffering. And, and you know, an organization, um, you know, the one that I was, I was volunteering with just really wasn't delivering in the way that it could. And so I said to myself that there has to be a better way. There has to be a way to channel resources for animals to parts of the world where, where it's really needed. Um, and so fast forward, I'm, I'm in veterinary school and I, I, I more or less put that idea on the shelf because I knew I was going to be so, so busy in, in school. But, yeah. but then I, I realized when I was in school that, well, I have all these classmates that are, that I, I'm surrounded with that are also really motivated and interested and, and, and interested in, in the type of work that, that I do. And, and so I proposed the idea to some classmates to see if I could gain any momentum, and um, and that's that's essentially where IBO started. And so I had spoken with a mentor uh, about a location that uh, they, that she would recommend where we could launch a new program. Uh, I started gathering the the team, and and so really the initial IBO team was a group of veterinary students that just wanted to do good in the world, that wanted to build more of a unique skill set. And, um, and so we, we, uh, we planned our first trip to um, uh, a community called Hikilio, uh, which is in northwestern uh, Nicaragua. And um, this is a part of Nicaragua where there's quite a bit of poverty and, and um, you know, there's lots of stray animals, um, the animals that you see often are very skinny. Uh, the, the, the people, you know, they don't have a whole lot of resources, and so there isn't a whole lot to offer the animals and, or invest into the animals, and so you see a lot of animal suffering. And, and so they don't really have a veterinarian in that part of the, the country either, and so we were more or less the first team of veterinarians to arrive and to start offering veterinary care and services, and, you know, the community really greatly appreciated it. And, and um, the, the beautiful thing was this was for veterinary students by veterinary students. And so the idea was to make this sustainable that the next class of veterinary students would be trained on how to conduct these programs. And then that class could train the next class, et cetera. And so the idea was that this could stay at UC Davis for veterinary students to gain exposure working in other parts of the world and um, uh, putting together these types of programs 
and um, and so that was that was the beginning. That was our first model. So, so uh, Dr. Eisenman, did it as as you just mentioned that kind of evolution? Did it become sort of almost like part of the curriculum, or it was still kind of this organization, but it was kind of unofficially part of of people that that share the kind of interests that you and your initial round of colleagues did? You know, it 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 never officially be, became a part of the curriculum, but um, but it was an official club of veterinary students. Okay, so that that allowed us access to more resources. Yeah, uh, through through the veterinary school, uh, we were unique in that we became a five hundred one c three nonprofit organization pretty early, and in a way that would allow us even more access to resources where, you know, people could donate and, and write off those donations. So we were a unique club in that we became a 501c3. But it, uh, it, never, it never turned into a official curriculum of the veterinary school where students could receive credit. Um, but that was something that we were, we were definitely hoping would happen at some point. And, and did it? Um, well, to the best of my knowledge, I I don't I don't think so. But okay, if, if you fast forward, that that club um, stayed at UC Davis, and uh, eventually, so essentially, it was a a club uh, with with an international veterinary outreach. But as international veterinary outreach grew into a uh, a larger organization, we decided that this club for students should stay at UC Davis. And so they continued uh, this program in Nicaragua, even though we were moving on to start new programs. Oh, I see. So it's really almost kind of like a, a subset continues, even though it was the mothership originally, it's it's kind of still lives at UC Davis. Meanwhile, the, the kind of larger 501c3 uh, with more structure version of IVO move, has moved on to other things. Exactly. Gotcha. So along the way, like especially when you were in the more of the formative stages to back up a little bit, what concerns did you or others you spoke with and you said, hey, I've got this idea with your, your fellow students there and colleagues um, about launching an international veterinary operation? Like, you know, just in terms of, let's say, uh, I don't know, local ordinances or cultural uh influences or laws or the possibility of insufficient resources. I mean, were there concerns along the way of like, you know, when we got somewhere, how would we actually, you know, would we be, would we be up against something or would we have to master some things first before we even got there? I mean, were there those kinds of questions along the way? Oh, yeah. There, there was, there's a big learning curve and there's lots of concerns, right? So, if, if you're developing a program where you're essentially delivering high-quality veterinary care to a part of the world that wouldn't normally have access to veterinary care, yeah, you have to be thoughtful about cultural differences. For sure. Uh, Impact. You have to be yeah. About, um, how you know, even just uh, ensuring that you know you're doing everything appropriately and legally and yeah you know you have you have the um you have the okays from the government you have you know you have your permits yet you, you you know you sort out your logistics and and you you raise enough funds and you know so there's all of these different variables that you're constantly juggling while you want to maintain this optimism that this 
program is going to be as impactful as possible. You're going to uh, reach as, as many animals as possible. And, and so, you know, that's always the hope. And, you know, sometimes you might get surprised. You might, it might turn out that you didn't even know, but maybe there was a, there's a holiday or some sort of local celebration that no one told you about. And you're, you're there to deliver, you know, uh, uh, veterinary care for, for a community, but then people are, you know, they have other priorities or something like that. So there's, yeah. there's a lot of different variables that go into the calculation and how you um, put this all together and make it as impactful as possible. And so you got to you got to maneuver those uncertainties and and really um, over time, you know, you, you figure out the, the the best process and strategy on how to do that. And probably how to research a different area that might have, the, as your example was, a holiday that you might not have otherwise counted on if you didn't do careful research to be alerted to that and schedule around that uh, as an example. Exactly. So when did you, did you know, like even within the first trip to, to Nicaragua that you were on to something, that, like that this, this idea it's definitely going to work. We, of course, we have to refine it and travel further along the le- learning curve. But was it right away where you thought, okay, this 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 thing is definitely going to succeed? It just needs a, you know a little more tinkering, a little more polish, whatever. But I'm on to something here for sure. Yeah, you know the the first trip really um, taught us a lot. We 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 were learning. Uh, probably more than we were teaching at that point, and and so it. I think I think one of the the, the big questions was, well, this this community or these communities that we're serving in northwestern Nicaragua, did they seem to appreciate uh, the service? You know, were we well received? Did they want us to come back? And and I think we we did feel um, overall positive about that. That everyone seemed very appreciative for for us. Uh, coming to their their communities and helping their animals, so that was that was kind of the one first big question. Yeah, and and then the other question too was, well, is this something that the veterinary students want to continue? We've started it; it's up to us to continue it. If we want this to stay um, at the veterinary school for veterinary students to to continue receiving exposure to international programs, um, it was up to us. And I think all of my my classmates, including myself. Thought well, that went well, but I bet we can do it better. And so, and so it, it it did continue, and and it at that point it did feel like we were on to something that this was really going to be uh, something special. And just so I'm clear, um, Dr. Eisenman, so even in that first trip to to Nicaragua, and, and I guess just really subsequently, even as the organization has evolved over the the, the, the ensuing decade, um, is there always an element of uh, the IVO? People that are on that that trip, that team, uh, teaching people, local people, uh, different veterinary skills or methods. Is that just kind of part and parcel of the whole experience? Yeah. So, so as we have evolved as an organization, we have moved away from the the reliance on American veterinary student volunteers. Mm. And so our new model is is really about leveraging veterinary professionals um, uh, that are well-trained. Um, many of them come from the U.S. or Canada, um, but, you know, veterinarians that are 
that are well-trained or even veterinary technicians or farriers, people that uh, work with animals, we want to allow them to share their skills and their experience with other veterinarians around the world that don't have the same access to education, right? Mm -hmm. So as you were saying earlier, you know, UC Davis is this renowned university and has all these great resources and, and, which is great, but most veterinary schools around the world are not like UC Davis and really lack a lot of resources. And what that translates into is, is not the highest quality of education. And sometimes they're even training young veterinarians, um, almost malpractices. Um, and so if we're able to collaborate with, with, uh, veterinary schools or young veterinarians and other parts of the world that maybe haven't received the best training or, you know, aren't, aren't being offered the best training at their institute, we can thereby, um, implement better practices, show them, um, you know, essentially just, um, uh, better ways to, to care for animals. And so our, our programs now, um, are really focused around this type of capacity building. We're trying to, trying to, to build the capacity of local veterinarians, but then we also do implement humane education, um, for the community members, people that are, um, you know, essentially the guardians of the, that population of animals that we're serving. And, you know, we, you know, with every animal that comes through our clinic, we want to uh, try to offer some some degree of education for that that guardian of that that animal and how they can better take care of their pet, so that that animal in turn can can better serve them. And so, it's not always small animals like dogs and cats. We've 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 conducted um, uh, horse welfare programs in the Philippines, um, mixed animals. So sometimes working with uh, livestock, um, and, um, you know, even pigs. So the, the, the hope is that if, if we can educate people to take better care of their animals, um, those animals will in turn better serve them and, and live longer lives and be less likely to, to spread disease, um, to people, et cetera. So does that mean, uh, and sorry if I, we didn't quite understand this, but so does that mean when you're talking about the guardians and stuff, does that mean that when IVO goes someplace now, there might just be uh, kind of lay people as well as, you know, veterinarians or aspiring veterinarians or vet techs so that when they're learning, like, how better to care for their animals, that's that's literally their their, their animals at their farm or, or even in their home or whatever, but they're not necessarily uh, medical or even aspiring medical professionals. That is correct. So... You could you could say that our approach is is multi pronged or multi tiered where you know you could look at the the veterinarian in a community as more or less a, a leader in animal welfare and we want to work with them of course and then below them they might have assistants uh, people that uh, you know are are helping the veterinarian and you know whether they're like an assistant or a, a veterinary technician um, and certain communities, you know, if we think about workhorses, for example, um, you know, there's people that sometimes will also care for, for horse hooves, et cetera, like a farrier. Yeah. So we want to make sure that we're offering the best knowledge to, to those, those leaders uh, of their community in terms of animal welfare and, and animal care. But then also just the, your everyday Joe and Jane that um, 
you know, maybe they rely on their horse for um, transport or they, they, you know, they have um, a dog that, that uh, they care for, um, you know, that sometimes is uh, kind of like a loose pet or, or you, know, you know, more of an outdoor animal. Um, we want to make sure that even those folks that own these animals or are the guardians of these animals, that they also have better information to take better care of their pets. And, you know, a lot of this also comes down to the kids. So, you know, people can be set in their old ways and can be a bit stubborn and sometimes harder to to, um, offer um, any sort of insight or instruction, whereas kids are are usually more like sponges and they... They, they, they watch and observe. A lot of the time we'll have clinics and kids will come and just hang out and watch us. And that's a great opportunity for us to set a good example, how to, how to handle an animal correctly, how to show compassion that their, you know, animals respond well to positive reinforcement. They don't respond well to negative reinforcement like hitting or, or anything else like that. Yeah. So, so we want to be able to offer different degrees of education for for everyone so that really you know this is this is about an animal welfare movement this is about advancing animal welfare in a community and um and you have to get you got to get everyone on board with that yeah no it sounds like it's really uh widened out in terms of its mission uh from from the early days of of you know, kind of thinking about it and starting in in meds in vet school at UC Davis um and some of it definitely could see you can really kind of trace the roots back to your experiences at, at San Francisco SPCA, et cetera. It seems like. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So this is Talking Animals on WNF. Um, Duncan Strauss, my guest is Dr. Eric Eisenman, founder of International Veterinary Outreach. We're hearing about how that works, and uh, uh, if you have any. Um, Comments or questions for Dr. Eisenman, you can call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org, or text 813-433-0885. So now we're in, you know, it's a, t- a decade or so in. So how does it work in, in now in 2022, for example? How is it decided where to go next? Um, is it like a form of almost like triage where you identify uh, identify areas of greater need or urgency or might multiple IVO teams um, deploy at the same time even but to different locations or how, how does that uh, work? Well, we, we have very set criteria on places that we feel fit with, uh, you know, are a good fit for our mission. Mm-hmm. So, for example, we really try to focus our programs in areas that we think the need is greatest, and you know that that's 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 a, a big range, right? There, yeah. There's there's great need here in the U.S., but if you go beyond the U.S. and you see you know uh, communities where there's a lot less resources than you typically see in the U.S., that often is translated into poor animal welfare, and so um, you know we're. The, the U.S. is probably our one exception. We, we've had a, a, a program here in the, the Bay Area, specifically in Oakland, California. And, you know, part of that is because we want to we wanna give back to our, our local community. And we want to, um, you know, we, we want to be able to, to have a, a local program here. Yeah. But most of our programs that we're delivering are, are in parts of the world where the, the need is just very great. Sure. And... 
for us to develop a new program, you know, there's lots of criteria, but probably one of the most important, if not the most important, is that we really need boots on the ground. We need someone at that location that that lives there and, and that can that can really help us coordinate launching a program. Because if we don't have someone like that, and we're going to say a, a far beyond country that, you know, we don't we don't know anyone. Yeah. Uh, chances are that that program is not going to do very well. So we want to we want to make sure that we have uh, a local contact that that has the ability to help us coordinate and, and plan the program. Okay. And so naturally, for us to launch these new programs, usually it comes from requests. So there's people in in different parts of the world that uh, find out about our organization and they'll contact us and. Some of them are good fits, and some of them are not good fits. And so we we have a, a very strong uh, kind of thorough vetting process mm. to figure out you know which programs are going to be a good fit, and then and then we um, you know it's all it all comes down to our budget as well, how many programs we can we can uh, launch in one year, and and um, and so that that's more or less our process and how we how we launch new programs. Yeah. All right. We're sort of running near the end of our time, uh, Dr. Eisenman, so I want to ask a couple questions. One thing that you just alluded to that probably hopefully is a relatively quick uh, answer, how is uh, IVO and all these efforts funded? Well, um, funding comes from uh, private donations, so mm-hmm. generous uh, uh, private donors, um, anyone that's listening right now that uh, would be interested in and supporting our programs, um, we are launching a new program in Tanzania in a couple of weeks. Yeah, that was um, question number two in our remaining time for sure. So we'll talk about that in uh, a sec. But great. Uh, um, great. So, so, so private donations is is uh, a really important part of our revenue stream. But we also uh, apply for grants from mm-hmm. foundations, and we're working on um, uh, corporate sponsorship as well. So. Corporate sponsorship is, you know, we're often trying to find other, um, you know, organizations or companies that are aligned with our values that, um, you know, also want to um, be a part of, of this animal welfare movement. And um, so those are those are kind of the main three streams yeah. of revenue that we're focusing on. Great. So, yeah, let's talk uh, semi-briefly, I'm afraid, but still nonetheless, let's talk at least a little about this new this new program in Tanzania. Sure. So we were contacted uh, about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, uh, from a Tanzanian veterinarian that um, essentially is fed up with how dogs are treated in his community, his city called Dodoma. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dodoma is a capital, is the capital city in Tanzania. And um, it's a rapidly growing city. And so there's a lot of people moving to the capital for economic opportunity and you know with people um moving there population growing there's there's definitely a a population of dogs uh stray dogs that's growing there and sadly this is a part of the world where rabies is still rampant Mm. Uh, the risk of dog bite rabies um is high and so they there's about 1500 people that die every year from dog bite rabies in tanzania and um, so it's a big problem. And so stray dogs are not treated well. They're looked at as pests. They're looked at as um, carriers of disease. And, yeah. And, and, and this whole 
large city of Dodoma, there's not one veterinary hospital. And so this veterinarian in Dodoma, he had reached out to us, and he's just he's tired of this this problem. You know, dogs are are you know either shot or poisoned, and um, it's an inhumane practice to to um, you know um, uh, control the population that way. And so over time, we've been working with with him as well as other uh, local Tanzanian partners, and so we've actually started. Um, planning a program where we're going to be working with two different Tanzanian veterinary institutes, um, training on best practices and in uh, spay-neuter surgery, as well as um, um, helping uh, explain the, the reasoning behind vaccination, you know, the immunology behind that, the, you know, deparasitization. So it's, you could call this also a, like a One Health type program or yeah. very public health focus. We're, we're trying to do our best to, um, to you know, ensure that dogs receive good preventative care, that they're, uh, you know, uh, free of, of di- disease and suffering, and that they're also less likely to transmit disease to people. And so over time, we're hoping that this program will um, allow uh, people to be more accepting of dogs and that there'll be better practices moving forward and, and um, just general better better welfare for the yeah. dog and, and uh, less risk of infectious disease like rabies for people. For sure. No, it sounds like it's really going to alter, hopefully, perceptions, and then, of course, the behavior and, and attitudes from there will be uh, altered as well. So this sounds really promising. That's great. Well, Dr. Eisenman, we have reached into our time. We're speaking with Dr. Eric Eisenman from International Veterinary Outreach. The website, again, to find out more or if you'd like to uh, contribute or help in some way or another, is ivo.vet, V-E-T, and... Um, that's the website to uh, to check them out and uh, do what you can to support their efforts. And uh, Dr. Eisman, thank you so much for joining us today on Talking Animals and great good luck with all your great work. Thanks for having me. You bet. In a moment, I'll speak with Gregory Malik Jones of Holistic for Pets in Bradenton. We'll fill us in on the anesthesia-free teeth cleaning opportunity at Bradenton Stores hosting this Saturday, October 8th, and again next month on November 12th. We'll also hear a bit about Holistic for Pets itself. That's coming up in mere moments right now that we're going to step into the comedy corner. This is Kyle Kinane with a piece I'm calling Cat Sneeds in today's comedy corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. Like, this is where I'm at socially, if... To explain where I'm at on the social spectrum, I recently said God bless you to a cat. <laughs> like I, I was alone in a room with a cat for a while. Like, not even just a brief moment, like an incident. Like, this was a whole afternoon. Not my room, not my cat. But I was fine with this arrangement. Like, this is what I can handle. Me and somebody else's cat, both of us just staring at walls, looking for answers. (laughs) And the cat sneezed. And then it was quiet. And that's what made it worse. If it would have just sneezed, it would be like, oh, God bless you. And then, well, you don't need that. You're a cat. We would have laughed. It would have been fine. <laughs> but instead, there was a sneeze. And then it was just that moment of just me sitting like, how do I play this right now? Do I say something? I was raised right. 
have loving porno shopping parents that instilled values in me. It's like, yeah, but it's a cat. I'm going for it. So I turn to it. It's like, God bless you, cat. I didn't even know its name. I was just opening up for once. So God bless you, cat. And the cat turned and looked at me, because that's what cats do. They look at the origin of sound. But they have very judgmental faces. So everything in that cat's expression was just like, why would you say that? That was Kyle Kinane, and today's Comedy Corner of the piece I've called Cat Sneeze, taking from an appearance of his on Comedy Central right now. It's time to speak with Gregory Malik Jones of Holistic for Pets in Bradenton about the anesthesia-free teeth cleaning taking place this Saturday, October 8th, and again next month on November 12th, and about Holistic for Pets itself. This is Gregory Malik Jones on Talking Animals on WNO. Good morning, Gregory. Good morning. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thank you for joining us on Talking Animals. Let's start with a brief overview of Holistic for Pets, uh, the Bradenton store in particular, of course. What is it and what yeah, do you carry there and that kind of thing? For sure. So, yeah, we have all the standard types of diets, the kibble diets, the freeze-dried diets, dehydrated. Our primary focus here is teaching people how to build a better bowl. So a lot of times we'll steer people towards our freezer section where we have raw diets, lightly cooked diets, and other inclusions to add to the bowl like goat's milk, bone broth, uh, a product called Green Juju, which is cold-pressed vegetables um, that really help enhance the life of our dogs because the more of the the fresh food elements that we can include, the better off our health is and the better kind of longevity we're able to give our animals. Well, that sounds great. And you, as I noted in the introduction, are a certified um, uh, pet food nutrition specialist. What training does one undergo to achieve that uh, status? Yeah, so there, there's multiple certification programs here in the U.S. Uh, that are really brought to us by more of the holistic-minded veterinarians. Um, so I trained under two holistic doctors up in Chicago, as well as San Luis Obispo, California, to get those certifications. Um, and it's really awesome because we're able to then teach pet parents how more of that whole food nutritional diet can be utilized without straying away from keeping our animals safe and ensuring that everything is complete and balanced. Um, There's so many companies popping up nowadays um, with the right intentions. However, most of those diets are not complete or balanced or formulated correctly in order to meet the needs of our companions. So with your training, and it sounds extensive with uh, various experts in various parts of the country even, um, Mm -hmm. can you you guide a customer towards a particular food based on a dog or a cat's uh, condition? Like, let's say my lab has skin allergies. Could you help pick out a new food, assuming this is maybe a new condition or a a different... Absolutely, yeah. So all all real major maladies that are affecting our dogs and cats, we're able to tailor diets specifically for diabetes, obesity, IBD, arthritis, you name it, we Mm. can definitely, cardiac disease, it all kind of falls under the same picture, and every disease process starts with inflammation. So once we can reduce that primary source of inflammation, typically we can rebound and have some of the veterinary drugs actually taken out of the picture. I've had dogs successfully transition to fresh food that no longer need insulin, that were diabetic, type 2, and they're they're healthy as can be now. So a lot of experience kind of changing the lives of our dogs and then kind of building upon things that we we know how to do here. So it's, it's 
a fun day we have here at the store. That's great. And I guess I should also mention that you're a, a vet tech as well. So you're bringing that kind of expertise to, to the, these undertakings as well. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So uh, anesthesia-free uh, dentals or teeth cleaning, I guess, is happening this Saturday, October 8th. I, I know those um, appointments are sold out, but November, I think there's still some um, left for November 12th. Um, but this is important, I think, because many animals need a good teeth cleaning, of course, but many are either too elderly or frail or otherwise have a condition where anesthesia would not be the best thing for them to... Absolutely. So yeah, how, how does this for, work? Yeah, so even for a young animal, sometimes anesthetics can be damaging. Kind of the long-term effects can be damaging as well. So yeah. we're able to offer this mainly for animals that don't have severe enough dental disease where extractions would be needed. Mm. Um, so really for plaque and tartar cases, even extreme plaque and tartar cases, we're able to change the mouth of those animals. We, we invite a company called East Pet Dental Care here once a month um, where these technicians are trained in not only handling techniques to help ease the anxiety of the animals that they're, they're helping, um, but they use the same dental tools as human dentists, the scalers, oh, wow. um, and the same, same methods of kind of polishing the teeth after. And, and really, it's, it's, it's encouraging because we're not dealing with any type of sedative or those drugs that cause harm to the body. Um, so there's no real recovery time that's needed. Um, there's no pain involved. Sometimes if at the gingival line of the actual tooth um, is like painful and inflamed, sometimes there's going to be a tiny bit of pain involved. But again, the outcome is far better because those animals aren't going to be in that chronic state of pain right. uh, because of their teeth being diseased. So. Yeah, we get in there, clean the teeth. They leave here looking absolutely beautiful. That's cool. So, so those animals with the scaler and some other things that may or may not, like you say, cause discomfort, or even just there may be some noise or whatever, uh, are they on? Are they given anything to sort of keep them calm and in place while the procedure is happening? Not, so, not unless the veterinarian that they primarily see has given them some type of drug, like a trazodone or other kind oh, of I see. sedation type drug. So uh, they, but typically they come in here with nothing on board and they leave yeah. here with nothing on board. So and it goes, a lot of times just... And it goes okay? They don't uh, They don't have any sort of bad reaction along the way to either the noise or the procedure? Not so, at all. Yeah. Sometimes we'll, we'll check them out like before just to make sure they're a good candidate with being handled. Yeah. We don't want to induce any more stress. We want to be as gentle as we can right. and as safe as we can with, with also the technician putting them at risk of a biting dog or something like that. We usually will vet the animal prior to the procedure. Okay, cool. I'm afraid we're at the end of our time, but this has been Gregory Malik-Jones of Holistic for Pets, the Bradenton store. The phone number there is 941-302-8802. You can call there to find out about remaining appointments in November. Thank you so much for joining us on Talking Animals. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. All right, we're at the end of Talking Animals on WNF.org and WNF in Tampa. And uh, just keep in mind, our fall fun drive starts tomorrow. Please support Talking Animals. Go to TalkingAnimals.net or go uh, to WNF.org and hit our Talking Animals tip jar. We'd appreciate any early support. It's Talking Animals on WNF Tampa's 